Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode number 29 of the Roses in Rhetoric podcast. As promised last week, we're joined today by Dr. Guy Bouvier, a neuroscience researcher at the University of California, San Francisco. Guy, thank you for joining us. And thank you so much for inviting me, guys. Yeah, we, we have a lot of fun in this episode. Uh, we're going to kind of cover three broad topics. Uh, we're going to first take a look at the specifics of uh, Guy's research. Um, then we're going to kind of get a little more broad. We're going to take a look at research in general. And then another topic that Go and I like to incorporate uh, into the show as well is to try to understand how the, these different areas, uh, whether it be research or other areas of interest, affect the people on a personal level. And so we're going to get to that a little bit later on plus an album of the week and our new segment, our social media shadows. But before kind of going into that, um, Joe had a had kind of a fun idea. He, we, we were both given a, a paper by our, our mutual friend, Cameron Wilhite, that you had published um, discussing kind of the visual cortex and the way that it incorporates motion and luminosity. And Joe's idea was that him, him and I would each try to explain to you what we think your paper is about and uh, you tell us how far off the mark we are from whether or not we understood it well. So this should be a lot of fun. I'm gonna pass it off to my charming co-host, Joseph Stanford to start things off. Go when you're ready, your take on uh, the paper from uh, Guy Bouvet. Okay, perfect. So the paper as I understood it was, it was a, the research was an investigation on the effects of head position on the brain, as well as, as uh, the effects of light on the brain's registration of those positions. So I understand that the brain has like a, a type of system in it, similar to your cell phone. First question, should I interrupt you when something is not necessarily accurate? Or I... uh, no, <laughs> just save it for the end. Save, save the video. <laughs> but uh, my- Overall, it's, it's great, it's great. But okay. Some, some... Go ahead. Okay, so I, I understand it to be like, there's an accelerometer in your brain, kind of similar to your phone, like the device in your phone that tells it Perfect. which way is up. And that same sensor exists within the brain. And that's what you were studying um, via mice. And there were certain things that had effects on that registration of the accelerometer for your brain. Mm -hmm. And some of those things are changes in light intensity and then some other things that you investigated. So that, that's my understanding of the gist of the, of the paper. Jim, do you wanna explain what your, your take was? Luckily, or perhaps unluckily, I had a similar take on the paper. Uh, so we'll have to see what, what we have wrong. The only thing I was gonna to add to it is a kind of the, there, there's, a, there's a group of cells in the brain that uh, Guy refers to as Psalm 5 cells. And the way that I kind of understood these cells working, Guy, is that they kind of integrate the light information with motion information. And when it's dark, and your brain is sensing movement, your brain kind of lowers the signal intensity of the visual cortex in a sense because it doesn't really trust what it's seeing when it's dark and moving around versus when it's lighter conditions, those same Psalm 5 cells don't inhibit um, the, the integration of, or rather the, uh, the visual cortex because it's light and you can incorporate the visual movement into your vision field as well. Help differentiate between your head movement in the visual field versus something moving in the visual field. So that was only going to be. He won? I think he won. Uh. <laughs> well, it was kind of complimentary. All right, everybody. That's episode number 29. Thank you for joining us, Keith. That was a lot of fun. We'll be back next week with another episode of, no. no. So uh, go well, ahead and tell us what. Yeah, go ahead. Actually, it was actually good. Overall, it was, it was almost perfect. Just necessarily not 
accurate in the terms of position. It's not position, it's velocity. Mm. So it's just the speed. I'm not looking at position. Even if you have an encoding in your brain of position, so basically you have some cells in your brain that will tell all, all the time in the outside world if you are looking like north, south, or wherever. In my case, it's more the velocity. So it's like you want to integrate both your head motion, so the speed, and the motion in the outside world, right? Uh, for instance, if you are, uh, I don't know, a lion or a tiger, you have the prey, you want to accurately estimate the speed of the prey and the speed on your own motion to catch it, right? It's a sensory motor integration, basically. You need both. And so what you say is, is actually accurate. Somehow, the velocity is also an integration of position. It's, it's true, uh, because at the end of the day, when you integrate a velocity, you get no position. But uh, mm -hmm. it's not what I show in the, in the paper. But overall, like the big picture was it was it, it was good. It was good. So don't worry. He, he won, but you know he went into more details. That, that that's it. So then you you were talking in your case about the cellular level. So what is great with mice is that we have uh, tools to manipulate neurons, circuit, and dissect circuits. And so uh, you went to uh, the cellular level, talking about somatostatin cells. So it's a, a very specific cell type that you have. In a lot of places in the brain, but for instance, in, in, in cortex. Uh, so if you want also, I can define what is cortex. I'm not sure it's necessary, but at least specific part of your brain, in my case, that integrate visual information. And you have those cells that they do stuff, right? Uh, it has been shown for uh, visual processing, but not much for other non-visual processing, because basically we start to discover since the last like, five to 10 years that we call that visual cortex, auditory cortex, uh, somatosensory cortex, but basically they do many, many, many things. And we define them but by their, their anatomy and the, and the function, but actually you have a, a lot of multisensory processes. So the visual cortex can integrate auditory information, vestibular information, vestibular is this, uh, what I'm doing basically, it's uh, the, what's, your accelerometer that feels uh, your, your motion. And it in integrates all of that. And what I show in the, in the paper is that this specific cell type can integrate both information, visual mm. and vestibular. And what is, what is interesting is that potentially this cell type could also integrate, for instance, auditory and visual. And basically, I wanted to, to see at the cellular level what was happening. And we found basically one cell type that was really explaining more as the behavior. And as you said, one hypothesis, and we don't know, when you are in the dark, you don't want necessarily visual processing to happen. So you don't just silence the, your visual cortex. It's not useful, you're in the dark, right? You don't need it. And potentially, if you look at other, other area like auditory and so on, it could do the opposite because you need in the dark your auditory system. But then once you are in the light, well, maybe you want both. You, you want to optimize your, your, your perception, your visual experience. And basically your vestibular system will help the visual system to understand what it's basically. So is there, a, is there like an added efficiency that's gained by the brain by suppressing the certain, like when it's dark and you don't process the visual information? Does that add efficiencies to the brain so they can be better in other areas? Um, I didn't test it, so I cannot tell you. Yeah. Uh, what I can tell you is that even in humans, so it's kind of relevant because even in humans, people describe that this suppression of the visual cortex uh, during motion, and they, 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 they call that the, the reciprocal inhibition. 
And basically what is happening is that it's, there is no demonstration of that. You know, in humans, it's very hard to do a demonstration of this circuit level. But what they claim is that it allows you to differentiate when you are moving from when the outside world is moving. Mm -hmm. And it's, if you think about it, I just, uh, I don't know, bring, like, take this. And while you are taking that, any motion triggers sensation, any sensation triggers motion, and it's a loop. And at the end, you need to differentiate both because, for instance, in schizophrenia, you cannot differentiate both, and it's you know it can start to have illusion. You don't know if it's this sensation is due to your own motion or motion in the outside world. And I think it's fundamental to to have this motor system and vestibular system to talk to sensory system to differentiate both. I don't know. Yeah. Did I address your question correctly? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Guy, I, I want to thank you for fighting your instinct to move the camera. I I, I saw you go for it. And you, and you resisted and moved the water bottle instead. That's great radio instinct. Um, I, wanna, I wanna take a kind of a, a step back and talk more broadly about this notion of integration as it applies to neuroscience. And in, in particular, um, this way that the brain has to incorporate uh, different signals in order to make some kind of decision, but also another book that Joe and I were reading this week is uh, a book by, the, by a, a Dr. Buzaki called The Brain Inside Out which is kind of explaining how our brain, rather than just taking in information, is at the same time as you were talking about, you know, it makes these predictions and then it has an experience and it, can, and it compares that experience to the prediction. And I guess I, for, for me, what I'm trying to understand, words like signal, words like integration as they happen in the brain, can you, can you explain kind of at a, at, a, at a cellular level what is happening to facilitate these things? How, how do neurons actually talk to one another and how are different parts of the brain connected in terms of, of signaling? Okay, so do you have uh, four or five orders? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, so, um, so let's say that, as I was saying, uh, at least in textbook, uh, when you go to school, and even, I mean, even me when I was uh, going to school, uh, basically they define the brain as, uh, and the human brain as the, the one who is a cortical area that's has been very pronounced, right? And that's why we are humans, because it's very developed and you have a lot of neurons contacting, contacting to each other. And so, and you also define the brain by different areas. And I think initially it's by the anatomy. So for instance, the visual cortex, you have the retina, that same projection to a relay zone that is called the thalamus. We call that a relay zone, but I think that's in a couple of years, maybe we, we should, give them a different name. It's not necessarily a relay. A relay is like he's doing nothing. Well, he's doing stuff, obviously. Otherwise, you will not do that. You will go straight to the cortex. So basically, you have the retina going to the thalamus, this relay zone, and then the thalamus send projection to the cortex. And the cortex, people say, well, you integrate uh, for visual cortex, at least, different features. So for instance, if you have a, a bar that is, uh, that is horizontal, you will activate a certain population of cells. If it's vertical, it will activate another population of cells. And we define basically cortical area as a, with having in mind a really cellular level and cellular understanding, like a single cell does something very specific. And so, um, so you, the, the, the thing is that when you record those neurons in, in cortex, you will have a small fraction when you present different stimuli that will I take, by the way, visual cortex as an example because I think it's very easy to understand. 
but uh, I could take auditory stimulation and it would be different frequency. I could take different smell for the olfactory bulb. It would be the same, more or less. But so you have the, the visual cortex with different uh, features and people started to realize, kind of not recently, but as I was saying earlier, that those cortical areas uh, basically respond to many other things, right? And it's funny because when you, back in the days when you started to record, uh, when you record the neurons, uh, you stick an electrode in the brain and you will have a response of neurons. Uh, basically what you would get is, uh, is uh, only a fraction of neurons that will respond. And you don't know if it's because you don't provide the good stimulus or if it's because, um, I don't know, they respond to something else. Or just measurement error, right? Or measurement you're, error. You're measuring on such you small can, scale. You, you can have ground force more or less uh, control for that. Um, depending on the technique, yes, you can have a measurement error. That's, that's very true. And so, uh, so basically, we define a different area by uh, responses. But at the end of the day, uh, we start to think that uh, one given area that would be that will respond to visual stimuli respond to actually a lot of stuff. So now how do they communicate to, with each other? Uh, it, was, uh, it was your question. So basically between neurons, you have synapses. So synapses is just a contact with neurons and you have a different type of synapses that I will talk about the, the most famous one. And you will have uh, some molecules with the electrical signals that could be released to communicate with the, the other neuron. And you have a presynaptic site, so pre synaptic side to the postsynaptic side. And then here you can have also um, basically communication, depending on how much you stimulate, you can have different type of synaptic connection and synaptic plasticity too, because obviously our brain is plastic. And our brain, like uh, 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 a normal network can learn, right? And depending on the data that you give to the brain, then the brain will make predictions. And I define the cortex initially as uh, something very passive. You give a stimulus, you have a response. Well, it's actually more and more people start to think that it's not like that at all. You make prediction all the time and visual prediction, for instance. I don't know. I'm in the hallway. Every day I walk down the, the hallway and I see this painting on my right. I'm pretty sure that if in one day I remove this painting, you will really pay attention to it. Otherwise, you won't even see the painting. Mm. And basically, you make prediction all the time. If I'm walking straight, I expect a visual to go this way because it has been like that all my, all my life, right? Um, I don't know if I turn the head and something is, uh, is vertical, I expect something to stay vertical. If it moves with me, I would be scared. I would freak out, right? <laughs> what's happening? So basically, you, you make prediction all the time. And your brain is very good at making prediction. And you have actually some structure, but it's not very necessarily very well understood yet, that once and can give this, their prediction mach machine that would give this prediction signal to the cortex, for instance. Or some people say that it's happening in cortex. Some people say it's happening somewhere else. I think it's happening everywhere anyway. But uh, basically, yeah, your brain is a prediction machine. It's, it's, just, it's not just, uh, you are not a, a snake, right? You, it's not purely passive, right? It's not, it's, not, it's not just responding to the environment around you. It's, yeah. it's creating that environment. Yeah, and as I said, why it's important to, uh, what I think what I'm doing is important is because 
you want to, because of your motion, your own motion, you want to make prediction about your sensory expectation. Mm -hmm. And both of them are really tight, uh, really tight together. So uh, I think we start to really think, we used to think at least 10, 20 years ago as the, you know, this different brain area isolated, you look at the single cell level. Now we look at the population level using different type of sensory, uh, sensory signals. It could be uh, visual, auditory, motor signals, and try to make sense of that, like really at the population level. So we are, it's a very exciting, exciting time. I, I feel to be a neuroscientist. And uh, even if I started my PhD on something very cellular, because I wanted to understand how one single cell can integrate this, this different information because even one single cell can have auditory and visual functions. But now I would like to make sense of that like really at the population level because I think that's how you will understand maybe one day how the brain works. Yes. Well, and he, just one example, I think for our listeners um, of what it means for your brain to make a prediction and then for that prediction to be compared to your environment. Yeah. Everybody's had the experience of picking up what they thought was a full cup of water and just, you know, almost throwing it because the, the cup of water was actually empty. We were expecting it to be heavier. We were, we were prepared. We made that prediction. And then we almost throw it off into orbit or something. So this is an idea that all of us are living with where we're constantly making predictions that are either validated or invalidated by our environment. And then we respond accordingly and make another prediction, so on and so forth. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's thinking about tennis. If you play tennis, uh, you will correct your movement because it was wrong because the ball went outside, right? And then you basically make prediction every time about your movement and uh, have an expectation about what would be basically the trajectory of the ball. And you optimize basically your prediction all the time. The thing is that you are not exactly always in the same position. And so that's why sometimes you make mistakes. If you were exactly in the same position every single time, you will record the same exact circuit. And mm -hmm. Ideally, it would be a win every single time, but you know, obviously it's not the case. But uh, yeah, that's, that's more or less the idea. And it's not necessarily, you have, a, I mean, you have also animals with less cortex like, yeah. like humans or less developed cortex that are great at that. And so it's also telling us that you don't need necessarily to be a human or cortex to do that. Mm -hmm. And mice is, for instance, a very good model to study that. Um, you were talking about the, the visual processing and how the mind or how the brain pieces in certain pieces of information that might be missing or it makes predictive models of what you're seeing. Yeah. So does that, does that mean that just because I see this field of vision in front of me, like how much of that is real versus how much of it is maybe abstract or made up or missing? In, do you understand what yeah, I'm asking? I like, see. I mean, at the end of the day, it's... Uh, like what's, what's real? Perception is not real, right? It's... Uh, yeah. It's... Um, it's biased by your experience, uh, what you've been through, uh, your movements. Uh, so for instance, if you want uh, some animals, they have very bad uh, binocular vision. So meaning that both eyes communicate with each other to see things in 3D, for instance. Mm -hmm. And you can see those animals that will actually start to move like that. Size you up. Exactly, <laughs> to, to basically see how far it is where it is in 3D and so on. So basically, you, you also your representation of the world will, uh, will be affected by, by, by your motion. But of course, by the context, by the experience, uh, I would see different stuff in different contexts, right? It's, um, 
you have this. Uh, I, I have a friend that plays a lot. Um, um, oh, what's the name? Um, squash. And every time he plays squash, basically he put glasses, you know, to protect himself. And uh, so once he forgot his, his glasses to play squash, and uh, he was uh, he was telling me that uh, basically everything was a bit shifted. And it's uh, because when he plays squash, he has glasses. He's used to it. And you so have, you have, have that parallax air coming through exactly, the glasses. Exactly. Yeah. So so it's everything works with context, but uh, thanks we are we are quite plastic, uh, especially with eye movements. In a couple of minutes, uh, it goes back. It's like if you go to space, like uh, yesterday, this from uh, other astronauts to space. When they will come back, yes. And uh, the head of the new uh, the new mission is a French. Oh, there you go. Perfect. Hey, perfect. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and so when they come back to Earth in a couple of days, it's, it, you know, initially they, they, they feel really bad gravity, right? And uh, in a couple of days, it, it, it's, back. it's back. And one of the, it's another example, by the way, of how vestibular system, because vestibular system helps you to feel also gravity, uh, can affect your vision. They can have real trouble of really following you seeing stuff when they, when they come back or, or when they go there as well at, at the beginning. But then the, the brain adapts because it's an amazing machine. Well, one of the things that is interesting to me uh, is to understand it, at least from kind of the outside looking in, it seems like there's been a lot of kind of excitement around neuroscience the past decade or so. Maybe that's not true, but that's kind of how it seems to me kind of on the outside. And we, we talked to another one of your lab colleagues about some of the breakthroughs that made their research possible. And I kind of wanted to ask you the, the same question. What, what key technologies um, allow you to do the research that you currently do? And another question tied to that one is, what, what technology do you think right now is lacking that if it were improved would make your research uh, better or easier to do? Yeah, so I think it's, uh, as I said, uh, just before, I think it's a very exciting time to be a neuroscientist, and uh, it goes fast. It goes really fast. So when, even when I started my postdoc, I was using you know this kind of electrode to record the brain activity, and you have uh, small channels um, that are very close to each other, like 20 micrometer away from each other. So yeah, very small, and these electrodes are very thin. And so the maximum that we could use, um, and that was commercially available, it was 32 channels. That was like, wow, a lot. The postdoc just before me, they were using uh, seven, uh, 16 channels. And for them, it was a lot. And um, so I was using 32. And today, people use thousands of channels. So it goes uh, in five years. I, I started my postdoc five years ago. So it goes so fast. And so I think that um, I haven't done any real breakthrough in terms of technology for my research. I think I potentially did breakthrough in terms of um, scientific results. But I think what was new, or at least we don't have a lot of people that are doing that in the world, is putting together specific things. Like to stimulate the vestibular system to trigger motion, it's, here it's a passive motion. And to do so, I have a servo motor that controls a turntable, and I have an animal on the turntable. It's like, uh, yeah, he's like playing games. I mean, I could even put the wheel, and the animal could could, uh, could drive the turntable. <laughs> and around that, I have multiple monitors to uh, stimulate uh, the visual system. 
And at the same time, I do recording in multiple places in, in the brain. So I think putting together all these technology together, basically putting that together was the novelty. It was the novelty in my lab. I was the first to do that. And I think in the world in mice, uh, you have only uh, a couple of people doing that. Uh, there was okay. one lab in London that works. I mean, they started that a while ago. Uh, they are very good at it. Uh, it's the lab of Tronagri in UCL. But otherwise, you don't have many people. Uh, so it was uh, initially, at least for me, quite challenging. Um, and I think that we are going in the, into the right direction. So what could help in the future my, my research, like technology? Well, here it was a passive movement, right? I'm controlling the motion. It's very good because you want to very accurately uh, manipulate the parameter space. And you, uh, you have one parameter at a time, meaning horizontal movement, one direction, one speed. If you have an animal in freely moving, it's, go, it's going in all directions. And you don't know if horizontal axes uh, integrate differently when the vertical axis is uh, used at the same time right. and basically how in 3D it interacts together. So it's way harder to, to, to understand, to make sense of it. And we, we can do that. Actually, in my paper, um, we also did that in the last piece of uh, data. We have basically a chronic implanted electrode. So you implant the electrode and then you lift the animal. And at the same time, I put a small accelerometer on the head. So I can record head motion at the same time. Mm. And then you can try to see a correlation between movements and activity in the brain. So that's great. But at the same time, when I put that, it, the weight of this stuff is two to three grams. For us, it's nothing. For an animal, it's and on top of that you have a cable right. the animal you, you will notice something basically if you do uh you look at an animal that is randomly like behaving and an animal that has something uh like this on, on the head they will do way less movement like that right well, right they will do it because they are used to have this cable and so on but way less so it's still not perfect and I think what would be amazing is to have a wireless electrodes with tons of channels, like really tons of channels, like to record as many as you can with this accelerometer that, uh, that you have on the head, on the, on the arm, uh, everywhere on the body, basically. Yeah. Or having many, many, many cameras. And people are, doing to do that, uh, are starting to do that. And then you can just reconstruct the brain in 3D. The issue with cameras is that you need really, really high-speed cameras and many of them. So, but I, I'm sure, I mean, we can send obviously people to, to the moon. So we should be able to do that at some point the next year. Very good. Job, I'll pass it back to you. Yeah, so I would like to take a, a little bit of a step back and mm -hmm. talk more about the academic process in itself and You've been in several labs and several groups. And I imagine you've had several advisors or PIs, I think is the proper term. Um, I'd be curious if you could talk through us like what you look for as you select a PI or an advisor or determine a lab that you're essentially going to spend the next few years of your life working with. Like, what is it about the good PIs that stand out to you? Uh -huh. And um, so and how yeah. do I pick a lab, basically? Yeah, how do you pick a lab? And then also apply that to, like, how do you pick a project like this one? Like, how did you pick this particular uh, um, endeavor? So 
basically I started to do, so, so I did a lot of uh, competition in table tennis uh, when I was younger and I had always been fascinated by, uh, by sensory motor integration and especially sensory motor learning. How do you optimize? I was talking about tennis because people may, people, I mean, can clearly understand tennis. I mean, table tennis would be exactly the same. Uh, so how do you optimize the movements, right? And so uh, that's how I got really interested by that. And that's, uh, I think I wanted to understand how it works. And the first, uh, the first rotation that I have, I have done actually was not necessarily about this. I was, the first rotation that I'd done, I was like, oh, I want to do research. Please uh, give me a shot in your lab. So I was not necessarily very passionate about uh, the subject. And actually after a couple of months, I asked the PI, oh, do you know anyone doing neuroscience? Because I don't necessarily, I didn't say I don't, I don't like what you are doing, but I don't necessarily, it's not, I think it's not what excites me the most. And unfortunately for me, her husband was a, a very famous neuroscientist. So I talked to her husband. And so um, I did my first, um, um, my first big uh, internship was in Cambridge in UK. Uh, and I was working on something actually kind of different uh, again, uh, but I'm getting there, no worries. Um, mm -hmm. it, I was working on multiple sclerosis. So this disease that basically you have a- oh, MS. Have a, MS, yeah. okay, yeah. okay, yeah. So you have a degenerescence of your myelin around your, your neurons that will um, basically avoid any transmission between neurons. And at some point you die. And we actually don't have a, a good, very good treatment uh, for that. And as most of the neurodegenerative disease, by the way. Mm. And so I felt that, at least initially, I always felt that I need to have something, to work on something meaningful and useful for people and to help people. Um, and so I started my first uh, rotation, um, let's call it an internship uh, doing, doing that. But then I was like, I want to uh, record neurons. I want to see activity by, with my own eye. I want to you know, uh, see basically the neurons being active. And then from that, I really started about like, this is really what I want to do. And then I had a very different approach to picking a lab and picking a PI. And here it was really about, and it was more important than an internship because then it was my PhD. PhD is long, so you need to be right. Uh, and not, yes. <laughs> and so I needed to uh, be fascinated by the subject, obviously, but also being uh, very inspired by the, the boss, by the PI. I think it's the first choice. Then the second step is you start to talk to people in the lab. And you want to know, is this guy an asshole or not? <laughs> Basically, that's, yeah, that, that, you know, PhD is long. So you, right. you want to know. It's not necessarily obvious from outside. He can be a very good scientist and basically being really an asshole. So you don't want that, obviously. And then you start also to ask people, basically, uh, is it a good environment? Do you have, uh, like, people, are, are they helpful? Uh, are they inspiring? Um, and all these kind of questions. And then, oh, well, do you like the city? It's important mm -hmm. too, right? Can you have fun in, in this city? And if you have a plus one, well, you also want to discuss to a plus one. 
uh, obviously. And, oh, oh, uh, not I not said, to cut you off, but you were saying that you want the PI to be inspirational and like the yes. group to be inspirational. Can you break that down? Like what, what is it in the PI that inspires you? So I, I would say um, my first, uh, my, for my PhD, for instance, I was fascinated by uh, uh, sensory motor integration and, and learning. And I wanted to understand it at the cellular level. So I started to work on synaptic plasticity. It's this process where you change the strength of the connection between neurons, uh, basically to optimize the motor command, to, play, to have the perfect uh, movement to play tennis, for instance. And you will adapt and optimize the synaptic weight between the neurons to have something perfect. But I wanted to understand the cellular and the molecular level. And my PhD advisor, I had two PhD advisors, but they were both my teachers. And I found their lectures fascinating. Uh, I was also very impressed that I found they were very charismatic. And it's not necessary, but I don't know to me, uh, at least I'm sure it made a huge difference too. But I think for my, really my PhD project, I was just fascinated by the project. And I really liked uh, my PhD advisor. I thought that they were uh, inspiring in terms of uh, question, in terms of knowledge, they were very knowledgeable. And as a human being, they were very good people, a very good person. So um, I talk also about, uh, yeah, as uh, are they also are good people and so on. Uh, for me, it's something that is very important. So. I, I cannot work with someone that I don't want. Some people can, I can. <laughs> well, especially for a PhD, it's going to be four years, right? So you want, you want to be, yeah, exactly right. Um, let's, Joe, I, I know that we have an album of the week, and I think kind of the next thing that we want to get into with he is talking more about this research area, and this is going to be kind of a bigger topic. Why don't we give our album of the week real quick, and then we'll hop back into this conversation. We have a special album of the week in honor of our, of our guest, who is a very charming Frenchman. And uh, to honor that, we have an album of the week, Joe, that I think uh, will, he will find very enjoyable. Yeah, so I'm, I'm excited to see if you've heard of this, uh, this album or this band. So the album is Tiamo, and the band is Phoenix. Okay, yes. that's a good start. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Joe, just stop right now before we ruin it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so for the notes for this, it's synthy, Italian vacation, lots of gelato references, groovy and dancey, romantic, cinematic lyrics, 80s soft rock. Um, 80s soft rock lyrics are also slightly darker than the sound, upbeat but not rapid pace, unrequited love, and then sultry. And then jumping into the review, with the current state of the world, we could all use a vacation right now. This week's album, Tiamo by Phoenix, is loosely based around a trip to Italy. Tiamo is a sixth album by Phoenix and was released in 2017. Inspired by Italian disco and soft rock, Tiamo tells a story of an unrequited love. The first two tracks on the album, titled J-Boy and Tiamo, set the stage for a whirlwind romance. They are both upbeat, fun, sultry, and irresistible. You know the feelings are unsustainable and probably unhealthy. However, lust does tend to have a blinding effect. On the track, For Dilate, Phoenix relates the decadence of making love 
to the silkiest, silkiest Italian sweet cream gelato. Maybe Costanza was onto something when he tried to mix food with pleasure. By the time you read the track, San Soleil, loneliness begins to creep in. With the final track, Telefono, the harsh realization that the romance is over finally hits. While the lyrics describe a one-sided relationship, sonically, Tiamo is a really fun listen. The bass is punchy and creates an up-tempo groove. Pair the bass with the congas on the tracks such as Tiamo, and you can't help but let the rhythm move you. Then there's the synthesizer that mixes in an airy and effortless sound throughout the album. Overall, Tiamo combines the effervescent feeling of infatuation with the darker reality that it might not last all while you're dancing the night away in an Italian discotheque somewhere in the 1980s. For a solid listening experience, I'd recommend grabbing a pint of ice cream and dreaming of your next big trip once everything settles down. So, and just to remind you, we, we don't write this. We have a, a correspondent that handpicks these albums for us each week. Um, what's, what's your take? Are you familiar with Phoenix? And uh, uh, Yeah, a bit, but uh, I, I didn't even listen to the, to the album, so I cannot, I cannot <laughs> really say anything. So, unfortunately, I just know Phoenix. I listened to a couple of songs uh, like a while ago. Uh, yeah, now that I have a baby, actually, I don't listen to much music anymore. Fair enough, fair enough. I, 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 so I, Joe, I don't know if you had a chance this week to listen to the album. I, I had a chance to listen to it. Um, and of course, we'll put all this information below the video. Um, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a fun listen. What, what was funny is, as, as you were saying in the lyrics, the lyrics are in, in Italian. I knew that it was a French band, and I thought, I thought I was like having some kind of weird stroke or something. I'm like, I'm hearing Italian, but it's supposed to be French. And I was really freaking out for a few minutes, but uh, there's also like English lyrics in it too. <laughs> yeah. I thought I was having a, 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 a uh, some kind of uh, flashback or something. It was really a lot of fun. Uh, no, it was, it was, it was a very, a very nice, fun album to listen to. Um, and Joe, another album to add to your uh, future coming day of the all album experience that you're putting together. So yeah. this would be good to have during dessert, I guess. Eric, you a lot. Any accent when they speak English, for instance? When they speak English? Um, I feel like I didn't really hear much of an accent. I don't, maybe. Yeah, I, feel, I feel like every time people sing, their accents go away. Yeah. Like a lot of these British people. I, and I, yeah, exactly. It's what I feel too. And every time I'm impressed. And then, we, well, this, I, I think I heard interviews and they, they speak kind of nice English. I mean, I cannot really tell in contrast with you and it's easier to pick any small, you know, detail and difference. But uh, yeah, I feel that they have a pretty, pretty good, uh, which is quite unusual for French uh, to have like very tiny accent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, definitely a good album. And of course, we'll put all the information um, in, our, in our tweets and everything else going out. Uh, but to, to get back to where we were kind of talking about before, uh, you talking about kind of the research environment in general, um, you were talking about what you look for in a, in a good PI. And let me kind of follow up with that question about what you look for in good lab mates and in good, good fellow researchers. And I guess to kind of set the table, my question would be, what is a good size for a lab group in order to facilitate cooperation between the different researchers that are involved? And how important is that cooperation among different lab members to bring about the best results for the different areas of research inside of the group? That's, uh, I don't know, that's a very 
Very good question. Um, so what do I expect uh, first uh, from my, I mean, colleagues? Well, being inspiring as well, right? Yeah. Um, learning stuff from them. Uh, it's even better. And I think my, my postdoc advisor, so Massimo Sponjani in UCSF, is uh, actually picking people this way. He's picking people that are doing not necessarily the, the same thing and try to put them together and he will learn from them and we will all learn from each other. And I think he's doing a really good job. And if you look at his publication track, obviously he's doing well, he's doing a good job. Um, the way it works in my lab here uh, is not necessarily the way it works in every lab, meaning that we have a project and we don't do much collaboration inside the lab. We have different projects and we try to not necessarily overlap too much between lab members. Uh, I think it's good and at the same time, it also avoids conflicts because at some point after you postdoc, you leave the lab with a subject. And if you have two people working on the same subject, well then it's the octagon, right? And then it's right. uh, an fight, right? Um, but um, no, it's, uh, I think it's good, at least the way it works in this lab, I think it's super good. But I think it depends also on the question. You can have some uh, projects that are very, very demanding in terms of uh, basically, uh, yeah, in terms of work and quantity of work and uh, you need to team up. Um, I think UCSF is quite collaborative. I've done already collaboration with uh, other lab like Vikas Soal uh, in UCSF. I'm doing collaboration right now with uh, Kevin Bender working in uh, ASD, uh, so Autism Disorder Syndrome. Uh, and the involvement of the cerebellum uh, brain structure that is involved in motor learning. Um, what is the involvement of some synapses in this, in this behavior for autistic kids? At the end, it's trying to make sense of uh, what, is, what does this mutation in, in these kids. Uh, so I think it's very collaborative in terms of teams, not necessarily in terms of people inside the lab, but it's not always the same. I, I, in my lab, at least, it's not working this way. Okay. Um, I'm not sure it's the best, by the way. Uh, what I'm saying is that it works quite well here. Sure. Uh, but uh, I don't know if I would necessarily do that in my lab, for instance. Sure. So that's a good segue to my next question, which is you're getting to the point in your career where you're looking at starting your own lab, correct? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So when you start your own lab, what are some things that you, the considerations that you want to take when running the lab? Like, are there certain tenants or rules or certain influences or anything like that that you you want to maintain in that lab uh i don't know i think i've been uh, being really open with people uh in terms of uh, your project and having continuous scientific discussion or any discussion actually between lab members is important um some people they have a tendency to not really talk about the science because they are afraid that these people will talk to another scientist that will talk to another scientist at some point someone randomly in the, uh, you know, working on more or less the same project somewhere else in the world, we'll hear about the, what he's doing and about the result and, you know, the, the, it's not published and you don't want someone to scoop you, basically. But uh, if you have, like, at least inside the lab, I want a continuous brainstorming between lab members. Uh, I want it to be very open. Uh, as a PI, I think that's one of the first things that you should keep in mind is to really try to be fair with people. You can be tough with people, that's fine. You can ask a lot, but be fair with people. 
I think that's the first rule because something unfair is really upsetting. Right? And so uh, you really, I think I would really try to be, to be fair. Yeah, those people and try to help as much as I can, but uh, you know, it's, uh, it's also different when you start a lab and when you have a lab since 10 years. When right. you start a lab, you need to be really hands-on. You need to push because you want to get the tenure, right? You want to have your job. Uh, I mean, you want to have a secure job. So I think you need to really push at the beginning. So I don't know. I will most likely behave differently at the beginning and after five or ten years. But uh, I don't know. Otherwise, uh, I don't know. Do good science. Like what you do and being exciting about what you do. I don't know. Uh, there is no real. Uh, it's like starting a company somehow. It's very exciting. Well, that's a really good segue because I do want to make kind of the comparison between a, a research lab and a in a type of startup, which I think there's a fair comparison there. But before we get there, I, I just I, I would be remiss to not kind of hone in on, on a thing you were just talking about, which is this notion of competition. Um, one thing Joe and I talk about a lot on the show is kind of the, the pros and cons, if you will, of competition. And uh, two writers that I find very influential, the first being Peter Thiel, and the second being a, a French philosopher by the name of René Girard, talk about this cycle of competition and kind of in extreme cases leads to violence. And more or less, it's this idea that competition can cause kind of an obsession between groups of people that were otherwise on kind of separate tracks, but through competition end up focusing on the same thing. And this idea of, of being scooped kind of remind, reminds me of that in the sense that you may have two researchers that are in similar fields and yet they hear from somebody else and they think, oh, that might be some big breakthrough. Let me kind of change my research to, to do what they're doing to maybe beat them to it. And the next thing you know, you have two researchers that were otherwise doing important work are now focusing on the same thing. And I was just kind of curious to, to, to get your, your take on that. What, what is the role of competition in academia right now? And do you think there's too much competition? And do you wish that there were more collaboration between different groups that were researching similar topics? I think it's not even about what I wish, but what can be the most efficient? Right, right. And I think that's, um, I think that competition is, uh, is obviously a good thing in certain contexts. Um, in economical context, I would say it's a disaster. Um, I don't know. Uh, I mean, we are not here to talk about politics, but somehow we could here, but I won't talk about it. But in any case, um, competition could be good because basically you want to go as fast as you can, you want to push, but at the same time in science, doing so, you have a lot of people that are not necessarily following the rules to get the result that they want. Why is that? Because you have a massive pressure on competition to get funded. Sure. And then it's a loop. Yeah. You need to publish very well, a lot, high impact journal to get funding and to get the PI position and then to uh, be able to have money for your labs and then to uh, have money for your labs number. And then it's, you know, it's circular. And at the end, I think that we put so much competition that you want to go where uh, basically you will have a result really soon because even the next year you don't have funding, you're dead. So that's how you want to explore, basically. And that's how you basically limit the discoveries. You, 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 you would make way more discoveries, potentially. Um, 
and in not adding that many competition, that, that much competition. So what does it look like for, for your research to get funded? Like what are the parameters that are being evaluated on whether it gets money or, or doesn't get money? That's a good question. <laughs> or is it, just, is it arbitrary? <laughs> no, it's, it's not. Obviously it's not. Sometimes you think it could be, honestly, but uh, I don't think it is. It's arbitrary in a way that uh, the people evaluating you are specialists that are not always specialists. Uh, but if you write very well your, your grant application, well, anyone should be able to understand. So try to write it very simply, very well. The issue is that it's biased anyway because you will have two, maybe three people that will be evaluating you and maybe they are specialists. So meaning if they are specialists, they are kind of a bit in competition with you. And um, even if they are not in competition with you, um, it's biased because you have two or three people. And even if you have only one people that doesn't like it, so for instance, when you try to publish it in very high impact journal, only one person doesn't like your, your manuscript, your paper won't be accepted. Hmm. So does that like prevent you from taking risks just because you don't want to offend that one squeaky wheel out there that might? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, taking a risk, I think, oh, you have two ways of doing science anyway. You have a result, you analyze your result, you make a prediction about the very small, tiny next step after this result. Okay, how does it work? And then, and so on and so on. Or you can have like, okay, I want to understand how it works. We have no clue about anything. And I will just start to record. It's more or less, well, it's not more or less what I did, but somehow it's a bit related to what I did uh, in uh, actually my, my paper. We don't know really what it's used for. We know a bit the circuit, but we don't know what it's used for. And um, I think if you bring what it's used for, that's how you get to the high impact mm. journal. It's not necessarily super easy to get there, especially when you have something very uh, exploratory. Right. But for sure, I mean, doing exploration, for instance, RNA, uh, studying RNA. And uh, so today with COVID-19 and the vaccine, we start to discover that, oh yeah, that's, that's important. But the person that actually did a lot of work on that, I don't remember her name. Uh, she, she, she was in academia. Uh, I think she left after that, but anyway, um, basically she, got, she didn't get funding back in the days. Right. And so they were like, oh, it's not interesting. It will never work. Well, no, it's more like saving the planet. So, you know, it's, it's very arbitrary. It's what right. I'm saying. Um, I don't remember her name. I'm, so, I, I, I'm sorry. Um, exactly what was the different steps or it worked. But basically, this is this is more of the spirit. Right. What we are doing. Some people will say it's not useful, and we won't get funding. Mm. Even people, even scientists, will say it's not useful. But maybe in uh, in 10, 20 years, 30 years, I don't know. It might be useful for something. But that's how science should work. But the thing is that money drives the world. So what can we do? And does most of the funding, it, does it come from government type agencies or state not, agencies? Not necessarily. It depends on the country as well. Uh, in the US, you have, uh, uh, for instance, this building, this building where, where we are, you have a lot of private fundings. And uh, so you have a lot of private fundings in the US. And I think that countries like France should try to go into the same direction because the public funding is very, very low. Mm. And you have a massive competition to get like, on top of that, not even a lot of money. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. so yeah, it's, uh, you have 
for us, I think that here it's our rich people that are giving money uh, to, to make this kind of building, for instance. But what would be great, and I think it was kind of related to maybe your next question that you already just started to talk about, private company and yeah. uh, basically academia. Yeah. Uh, I think we should go into this direction because they know how to make money. We don't, obviously. <laughs> but I think we can work together on uh, if push really further the science. Well, that's, uh, yeah. And, and, I, and I think that was kind of, you know, let me just ask one more kind of general question about research. And then, and then I, I do want to talk a little bit about you know, thinking of research as kind of a company, but you know, what 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 would be your pitch to the public about why this kind of research is important? I know we were talking with one of your lab mates a few weeks ago, and the, the topic was brought up about the importance of communicating research to the public, in in, in kind of in in a, in a in a way to show why it's important, but also to try to to demystify some of it as well, which I think is also important. You know, what would kind of be you know I. Your elevator pitch or something like that, you know, to to the public to explain the importance of your work and uh, and, and really what motivates you as a scientist to pursue this kind of work. Yeah. So uh, if I take the big picture of sensory motor integration, I would tell you that most of the neurodegenerative disease, Parkinson disease, autism disorder, uh, schizophrenia, you impact your sensory perception of the world, and it's also sometimes related about how you integrate basically your vestibular motor system and your uh, sensation, so it could be visual or anything uh, around. So I think if you, what I'm doing right now, I'm not using as a model system any uh, gene that are involved uh, in any of these diseases, but if you want to understand something that is not working, you want to understand how it's working first. Mm -hmm. But I think people, people want results in the next four or five years. Mm -hmm. It's like a politics. He will give money to uh, education and money to research. I mean, actually they won't because in five years, they're, they're not there anymore. They won't get the reward. They won't, they won't be uh, you know, congratulated. Oh yeah, you put money into research. It's good for your country. It's very good. No, it would be in 20 years. Well, they don't care about 20 years. It's not about that. It's maybe a Republican or, or the other one that, um, you know, that will basically uh, have the results. So basically it's, uh, it's hard for people to understand when you don't have an immediate, mm. uh, like right now, a result, uh, because it's how it works in private company. You have a deadline, you need to uh, have a product, sell the product, and the product has to be useful uh, to make people happy or, or to facilitate life uh, for people. So. I think that's why. Oh, otherwise, you are very, very, very rich and you have a lot of money on your bank account. And then basically, money will bring more money. And uh, you do whatever you want with this money and you do research, but uh, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> yeah, no, I can see that as being a yeah. tough business model, like especially for disciplines of neuroscience that cater towards some of these neurological disorders like MS or schizophrenia, yeah. like you yeah. mentioned. And it's like, people like investors aren't going to want to put money towards that until they become affected by something like that exactly. until they get some skin in the game. Exactly. And then at that point they care. But other than that, I think you have the, the CEO of Red Bull, for instance, is a, I think a family member um, had a car accident. I think I'm not necessarily sure, but he had an accident and then he had like basically the, the this, what is uh, impacted in uh, the myelin around the, the, the neurons. Mm. Basically it has been cut, the spinal cord has been cut. Mm. 
and to, uh, he started to put tons of money in MS mm. and in uh, basically uh, stem cell um, uh, research. Basically, the, the idea would be to, to inject stem cells to create new mining around the neurons. And then basically the spinal cord that was cut like that will start to regenerate and then you will walk again, for instance. And uh, so, yeah, usually you have very, very rich people and they have a family member that got cancer, cancer uh, that's an MS or an accident or, or whatever, and they start to money. I think it could be maybe, but as I was saying, in the US, honestly, uh, a lot of money from very rich people is, uh, it's easier to give money actually for research in the US compared to France, I feel. But um, what, what type of roadblocks are there? Are there like, uh, taxes or well taxes kind of yes and maybe uh uh all to say when uh, when you don't want to. <laughs> intimidation I, I, don't know, or? I don't know why exactly in france i i don't know it's it's not how it was it's not like in the 16th century where you have like these rich people that were giving money uh, <laughs> for uh, uh, i mean scientists um the light century basically uh, i think it should work um way more this way because obviously the, the economical how it works right now is public funding and it doesn't necessarily work it's what it's what mm -hmm. i'm saying because of the business model basically mm. otherwise we change the business model and private and academia basically can work a bit more together but i think for the long run we need potentially change or optimize the business model of, uh, of academia if we can call that a business model by the way we cannot <laughs> Well, let me, so I guess kind of, kind of tie in or to kind of tie in this, this segment before we get on to kind of the more, you know, personal impacts that your research has had on you. Let me just kind of ask you kind of one more tying up question for this uh, as a results or as it relates to uh, the role of innovation in research groups and in being a good researcher. And you talked a little bit about this earlier about there not being really a key breakthrough that made your research possible, but it was more your ability to assemble a collection of technologies in order to arrive at some kind of novelty. And that reminds me of kind of this theme that I see emerging right now that a lot of the breakthroughs, especially in biology, are not necessarily going to come from, from peering deeper into a problem, but in understanding how different systems work together. And as we we're talking about the brain earlier, that seems to me a very natural place for this kind of thought process to be very important. Rather than understanding more and more about how an individual neuron works, it'll be more and more about understanding how the brain works at a, at a systems level inside of the brain. Um, do you think that's a fair assessment in terms of innovation on the one hand and also the systems perspective of the brain? Um, or do you, do you not agree with that? Well, uh, I think I'm more or less two questions here. So the first one is, um, I think it's important to understand the technique and then put them together. An engineer will just, not just, but will basically uh, <laughs> make the technique and make things happen, right? Uh, but if it was the case, and if it was what we are looking for in our science, we would just hire engineers, which could be, uh, by the way, an idea that is not stupid at all. As for instance, for Neuralink, the Elon Musk uh, company, you have uh, a couple of neuroscientists, but you have mostly engineers. Because uh, the neuroscientist will think about the question, he knows the brain, he knows the circuits, he knows how to uh, do uh, experiments on animals. 
but the, the engineer will just build the records one. I mean, just again, sorry guys, but we'll build the, it's mandatory, right? But um, we'll build the records. So we need both working end to end, basically. And that's how you make discovery. And I don't remember if it's uh, Sidney Brenner, the, the, the Nobel Prize for apoptosis, that say the sentence like basically, you made discovery because of uh, breakthrough in technology or something. It was not the sentence at all, but it was something like that. And I think a lot of scientists think this way, but I also think that this is, these days you can have people, oh yeah, I can record 1 million neurons at the same time. Okay, good for you. Then what? What is your question? What do you do with that? Okay, where's the application? What is the application? So you can have many, I mean, technologically, and that's very good because someone else will say, oh yeah, now we can do that. And someone else thought about, oh, once we have this technique, we can right. use it. Right. And that's how basically someone else will think about using this technique for his question, for a specific question in disease or something else. And I think that's why collaboration are important. And um, that it's not alone that you will have a breakthrough and then you will have an idea. It doesn't necessarily work like that. Someone right. else will have a breakthrough and you need to have a, a, a nice, a big picture about what people are doing around to pick what is interesting for your question. And I think that's how you push uh, forward the science. And I, then the second question, what you, you were making an analogy between, uh, once again, uh, the brain, right? Different areas, that's... Right, right. Just kind of if, if what, what you thought kind of the, the future of neuroscience would look like, and do you think it would be more and more about understanding how different parts of the brain work together or, okay. Yeah. So basically I would say that in the nineties, it was really about, I will record one neurons and we, I will understand how this neuron integrate different inputs and what uh, receptor of molecule and so on, do what at the single neuron level. Mm -hmm. And um, it was because, and thanks to the breakthrough with the patch camp recording, once talking about technique, Nobel Prize in 1991 about Patchkamp, uh, Sackman and Mayer in, uh, in Germany. Basically, they found they discovered a way to record neurons and currents, small currents in, inside the neuron. And because of that, then you have like years of beautiful discoveries uh, thanks to the technique. So you see technique and brain discovery. And then they st we started to record more and more neurons in one given structure, but it was still in the intact animal. You record neurons and responding to one orientation, for instance, of the visual system, for instance, one cell responds to a horizontal bar or another cell vertical bar, but it was still this single cell uh, characterization. Another Nobel Prize for that was Uber and Wiesel. In, uh, it was actually way before the, the patch camp, it was 1981, I believe. And, uh, but it was still single cell, right? And you have this characterization. And in the past years, it started to be one given area of the brain. We understand at the population level what is happening in this given area. And now it's like, okay, how areas communicate with each other? And basically the loop between different areas in the brain. And I think we are really going into this direction, which is by the way, way more complex to untangle. And mm. you can tell also with the duration of a postdoc, for instance. Back in the days, a postdoc, it was two, three years, Today it's five, eight years. It's because, I mean, the question are way more demanding. Right. And you record multiple areas in the brain and people want to understand from the 
the, the cellular level to the most like integrated behavior uh, and it's it start to be yeah complex but i mean brain is probably quite complex so <laughs> questions are getting complex yeah so we have one more assignment we want to get to, which is kind of going to be to kind of tie in Guy's research with kind of kind of his personal outlook on things. And before getting there, though, let's do our, our 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 social media shout outs real quick. And I think I think we'll we'll both agree that the uh, the two behind the scenes stars of today's show, without a doubt, would be Francisco Arpericio and Cameron Wilhite, who were uh, instrumental in making this uh, episode come together. They helped set it up. They're both research colleagues of Guy. Um, so we'll be uh, shouting them out on our tweets later on. Uh, but a, a huge thanks to them for helping put this together. This has been a lot of fun. Um, and, and Joe, you were actually out there, you know, getting this all set up. You know, just tell us a little bit about what it takes to make a show like this come together on site. Yeah, well, there's always going to be unknowns when you go somewhere somewhere new to record something like this. But fortunately for me, I had I had producer Cam with me. I had producer Francisco. And we were able to find an awesome venue to do this. And, an awesome interviewee to have on the show and uh yeah these things just have a way of working themselves out and uh here at rnr we are always about the cat landing on its feet and uh we've been landing on our feet now for 29 episodes in a row gonna keep on going strong so let's 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 break into this to this last segment uh and then uh, we'll we'll leave you guys to enjoy the uh, beautiful, although slightly overcast skies of uh, of San Francisco. So, Guy, where, where I wanted to take this next part is just to kind of get an idea of how your research has affected your perspective on things. And I wanted to kind of open up the question with with asking you about how you think about the brain in terms of kind of like a mental model. How do you how do you approach solving problems in the brain? How do you organize your thoughts around the brain? What kind of analogies or metaphors do you find useful for working through these kind of problems? Um, so I, I'm not, I'm not sure. So what do you mean exactly mm -hmm. by uh, by analogy? So you mean like the process, like uh, well, it's more or less a scientific process. That's yeah, exactly. So kind of just when when you're trying to pose a problem. Uh, about the brain, how do you kind of organize your thoughts around? It? I mean, obviously you were just saying a moment ago how complex the brain is. What, what kind of simplifications or, or, or what, kind of, um, what kind of generalizations do you use for trying to parse your thoughts about the brain just to kind of help organize your thoughts around these complex questions? Well, I think that's where you have to be careful and uh, being into more complex system is a lot of people, they have very strong conclusion when they see a correlation. So for instance, it's, I don't know, it's, it, it won't necessarily cover all your questions what I'm saying right now, but I think it's important to say, and a lot of people say, well, you know, if uh, the animal is doing, uh, I don't know, is grasping something, and at the same time, you will have an increase of activity somewhere in the brain. I'm sure you would have some, some somewhere in the brain increase of activity. So you will say, well, it's because uh, he's moving the arm. Well, at the same time, you move the arm, you move the, the muscle in the neck, you move the tail, or whatever. And so it's something that is uh, very difficult. And that, that's why I think, well, before making conclusion, you should always try. And I think it's what we try to do in, in all of So basically, we try to really see the correlation. Then if you have uh, point A, neuron A or neuron B, we try to move neuron A 
either inhibiting neuron A or exciting neuron, neuron B after the correlation, and then trying to make sense of this correlation, basically. Mm. And at the end of the day, what is important as well is what does it mean? You know, you have, okay, I have a correlation between these neurons and this behavior. Okay, then what? Good for you. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean it's, it's, it doesn't mean anything. So I think, and it's again, uh, something that is in the air as well. You, people are pushing the technology. Oh, I can record 1,000 neurons and then I can decode uh, the activity of the brain. And because I have so many units, I can decode it at the very, very good accuracy, like almost perfect. Okay, good for you. And what is your scientific question? What is your question? What do you want to solve? What problem do you want to solve? What does it mean exactly? So I think that's, that's what I try uh, to keep in mind when I ask, uh, when I ask a question. So in other words, you're, you're trying to avoid being just a basic cartographer or someone that's just yeah, mapping exactly. regions. I, I, I guess it's well exciting. I'm not saying that people are doing, for instance, descriptive uh, description of anatomy or description of the circuit. Mm. I think that's very useful for everyone, and especially for, I mean, for my job day to day. Uh, but it's not necessarily how I see uh, science. It's not necessarily how mm. I get excited. Some people would get like, you know, seeing a, a new circuit on the pathway it could blow their mind. Well, me a bit less, and I'm more uh, <laughs> interested about the, yeah, the scientific question, what does it mean exactly? Okay, so I, going back to worldview, I have a related question to that. Uh, you were talking about table tennis earlier and yep. maybe tennis sports. Yep. Uh, when you play these sports, when you do these, these tasks, these events, do you take anything you've learned from your, your, your neurological studies on sensory inputs to apply it to your game? Like for instance, would it make sense to wear earplugs when you play so that you can be more focused on the, the visual part of something or play blindfolded or I don't know, some, do, okay. do you take those considerations into activities like that? Well, I played table tennis a lot before I did any more science. I yeah. think it's the opposite way. It's, uh, it was because I was playing that I, I got interested by how it works. Exactly, I think putting earplugs or any covering any sensory modality while you are playing table tennis or tennis would be a very bad idea because you use mm -hmm. actually your earring to right. get an idea of the trajectory, especially in table tennis because it makes a lot of noise. And the timing between, you know, you hit the ball, you can hear the ball, you can see the ball, you can, uh, actually mm -hmm. you use your audition. And I'm pretty sure it would be actually a fun experience. You should uh, wear earplugs or not, and then play table tennis. I, I'm yeah. sure you'd be terrible at this one. But, but Guy, how would you train a mouse to play table tennis? There's no way. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I'm working on that, but I'm sure maybe, maybe, at least with, with monkeys, uh, you know, you can uh, put electrodes in the brain, and then you can uh, play. Uh, what's the What's the game? Um, Pong. 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 Yes. I'm sure they can play table tennis with a fake player just you know thinking about table tennis because at the end of the of, of the day pong and ping pong is very close right mm. uh, yeah. it's only one word different exactly. only one word only one syllable i mean how, yeah <laughs> and so um i think you could i think one of the goal initially when i started my actual project was i want my animal uh, to drive the table in the virtual reality because when you think also about my project is about a visual and vestibular integration. Well, what happened when you have a mismatch between the two? Hmm. What happened when you have, well, for instance, when you are in your car and you read something. 
Some people uh, can do that. I cannot, otherwise I vomit. <laughs> and so, um, actually, you have uh, about, you know, why am I doing what I'm doing right now? And is it interesting for, you know, people in companies? You have actually Google, Uber, or companies like that that are working on vestibular visual uh, integration. But because the, the goal is to have a car with a driver, and the goal is to be able to make, to do other stuff, read, text, right. or uh, while you are in the car, right? Yeah. But a big, big fraction of uh, American population, or I mean, people in the world, they are motion sick. Mm -hmm. So how do you deal with that? So actually, from an, it, it seems stupid, but from an economical point of view, it's actually kind of, uh, kind of interesting for them if, if mm -hmm. they can solve the problem. So who knows? Maybe next time you will interview me, I will go for the Google. We'll uh, keep our fingers crossed. That would be, that would be uh, great. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, I'm 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 curious, uh, Guy. Just I, I we know that you're also kind of a fan of, of MMA, and I'm just curious, you know, just kind of quickly as someone researching neuroscience, obviously knowing how delicate the brain is, I'm just kind of curious what you know. You want to avoid head trauma? I, I'm I sure. I don't think about that. Um, <laughs> okay. just, uh, you know, sometimes you know, are stupid, right? Like, I just, well, at the same, I, well, well, I didn't say that I did judo for a while. Uh, so I think that's how I get interested. Uh, sure. Very young to martial arts. And I don't like to fight. Uh, I just, uh, I just, as a sport, I like, uh, yeah, martial art and I think MMA, even if, some part of MMA, I don't like it. So for instance, I feel that once, when someone is knocked out, I think mm. that the referee takes way too long <laughs> oh, yeah. to take the guy that is already on the floor and obviously knock out. <laughs> right, and right. That's the part that I think they, they, we need some optimization. I don't know the guy get the penalty. If he punch the guy, the guy right. is already knocked out, obviously. Mm. So this part, I really don't like it because I just said, oh, you didn't say it, but uh, you, you wanted me to say that, yeah, that's a very dangerous sport, yes. Um, and you can have brain from it. Um, uh, so my take on that is, I don't know why I like it. I just, uh, <laughs> hey, I'm also, I'm also a fan my, myself. Uh, and uh, that's... Uh, yeah, I, I think humans just have an inherent appreciation for violence and destruction. Especially when you're not involved in it. Yes, yeah, right. Especially when there's when there's a, a cage separating you from it, <laughs> so it can't affect. Oh, yeah, you. yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think I also like. Uh, so recently, I, I was uh, I was watching a lot. Uh, so following Nessali Francis Ngannou. Mm. So he's the heavyweight uh, UFC uh, last champion. He's a big uh, boy. Yeah, that's, a, boy. that's until I get my chance with him. I'm gonna take that belt back. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, go, 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 go uh, um, I think I like the guy more for not well. He has a, he's the Mike Tyson of the MMA, right? He's a puncher like crazy. Mm -hmm. And but yeah, uh, what I like about the guy is uh, is uh, is a story. So I don't know if you know his story, but he, he came from Africa, from Nigeria, right? From Nigeria, uh, from or, or what was it? No, not it's not Nigeria. It's uh, isn't it Cameroon? That sounds right. I think it's Cameroon. And uh, basically, he tried to go to Europe, uh, crossing, uh, you know, the way uh, people try to illegally come to Europe. And he tried, seven, I think, six or seven times. 
to cross uh, you know to come to Europe. Then ah. we arrived in uh, in France, and he was homeless for a ah. while. And um, you know, in this association for homeless, I met someone, and he he was always talking about boxing. He was ah. a big fan, but he, he didn't even have a, a TV. He was always talking about Mike Tyson and videos of Mike Tyson and so on. And uh, he met someone that say, oh yeah, you should talk to this guy. He's, uh, he has a boxing uh, uh, club and uh, you should go there. And um, he went there. The guys saw uh, Francis Ngannou and say, oh, you want, uh, you want to try? He, he gave him some uh, you know, gloves and everything because he had, he had nothing. Uh, he started to, to work, find a small job, but you know, making money was, uh, I mean, he didn't have much money, nowhere to live to. And uh, so, and then the guy, the trainer saw the guy and he was naturally gifted, obviously. He was punching very hard, even like naturally, right? And he started like that. And then uh, he started to win some game Then he started MMA already. He was already in France when he started in UFC. And now he's in the US with a very good trainer, very good team. And now he's a world champion. And he started uh, six years ago. Wow. And, so he, this guy is gifted. So basically, he's, he was saying when he was younger, he was uh, uh, opening a door and he was breaking doors. Just opening a door. He has, <laughs> right, he, right, right. Just, he's just born, right? And I think, at least for this guy, that's, I like MMA, but I like also some, also, for instance, in this case, the, the story behind, the, you know, right. believing in yourself and think that you can make it. And I think it's, uh, I think it's a good story, right? I like it. I, I often have said that Joe and I are the uh, Francis Ngano of the podcast world with all of our... Uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I've never said Joe, I'm tempted to kind of wrap things up on that note, but I wanted to give you a chance to add anything else if uh, you wanted to. Oh, no. I just wanted to, to thank you for being on today. And... Yeah. Um, also, we, we got a chance to get lunch yesterday and he showed me a great pad thai spot. So I've been thinking about that ever since. But yeah. Sure. Uh, come next Friday. Well, thanks so much, make guys. A trip. It was very fun. Uh, well, of course, the, the uh, pleasure is all ours. Uh, you know, we, we kind of started taking this episodic approach maybe two weeks ago or something. And neuroscience is kind of a natural place for us to start because I think it ties in very well with themes that Joe and I talk about on the show all the time whether it be persuasion or Cialdini's work on, uh, on, on influence, et cetera. But also talk with people that are involved in research is important because another thing that Joe and I talk about is the power of small teams, the power of innovation, et cetera. And so having Guy here talking about how all those concepts come together in uh, an important area of research and also in the research team was uh, really exciting for us. Uh, Guy, we know uh, that, you are busy, or that you're a very busy person, so we appreciate you taking time to do this with us today. And um, we will definitely keep in touch. But until next time, I'm Jimmy Hackett signing off for Justice Stanford and Yves Bouvet saying ciao.